0: This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks.
1: Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great, great, great grandson of Jupiter Gilliard a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you.
0: It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that, and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community.
1: So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I I consider myself a city kid you know when we initially got a horse you know I have that New York City mindset a horse I'm thinking thoroughbred horse aqueduct racetrack (laughs) Belmont racetrack those type of things you know and 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 slowly but surely I'm starting to understand a lot more I do remember early on like
2: you know, the first month or two of dating, how we would daydream about starting a farm together. And it's kind of like, hold on, let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that, you know? (laughs) So what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life. um, And it very much so did.
3: I'm interested in black liberation that's
2: ecological and that's not contingent upon (sighs) these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want
3: and that I seek for our, for our people, and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability.
2: And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time?
1: Please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Oh my gosh, we have Bobby Comforto actually doing her own introduction on the show today. Hi,
3: Bobby. Hi, Zara. How are you today?
0: You know what? Today, I am pretty good. I worked a lot this weekend, so I was a little tired, but uh, it was such a lovely day here in New York City, and I Took a stroll up to the Union Square Farmer's Market and got some chili peppers. Mm. Yeah, I'm chili obsessed. (laughs) And you know the thing with like seasonal vegetables, you're like, you gotta get them while the getting's good, am I right? Absolutely. What's going on with you? Today is your hubby's birthday, isn't it?
3: Yes, we had a really nice walk on the ocean and a lovely lunch and a day off, which is very exciting for me. I know, you're playing hooky. Yep. So on today's show, guys, we have the...
0: Honor. I don't even know if there's a word for it, but honor would be the closest thing. We'll put the word
3: distinct before honor.
0: The distinct honor of speaking with legend, music legend, Judy Collins. Mm. Um, This was just, I mean, Bobby, what do you think? I know that you were blown away. We both were blown away by just how incredible she was. And also that she joined us because she's such a a force in, in the history of music.
3: And it's just, we felt humbled to have her on our show. Absolutely. Um, Judy Collins is a magnificent storyteller, poet, artist, musician, writer, and the wisest of women.
0: Yeah, she is really amazing. Yeah, yeah, we had a great talk and she has a lot to say on the topic of food and grief and in a different way than with a lot of guests that we've had in the past. You know, I think many people that we have on, and this is a wonderful thing, but choose to speak about some of the more positive ways in which food is you know influence their grieving process yes. and you know Judy very openly shares how she struggled with an eating disorder in her past and so I think that was just like really interesting and uh a good perspective to have because the intersection of food and grief really isn't always positive right. and when it can be that's great but it isn't always and so I'm I'm glad that we got to have her share her perspective about that.
3: I think Judy also you know is somebody that has had quite a, a journey most of us listeners just know about her, you know, her singing and her beautiful music and her beautiful voice and her writing. But I, it'll be very interesting for those of you listening to learn about her grief. And it's not just the losses that she had, but her whole life really had a lot of grief in it from a very early yeah. age, you know, yeah. and, um, she's somebody that's walked the journey and really helps to interpret life and loss. Um, yeah. You know, through her songs, through the written words. And, you know, she very much reminded me of some of my very, very favorite poets. You know, Rumi, the 12th century poet and Mary Oliver and Joe Didion, who wrote about loss and Leonard Cohen and C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis and Emily Dickinson. And I feel like she's just right up there with them. I. In preparing for our interview, I read really digested. I shouldn't say read, but I digested her book. And, um, yeah, I, I yeah. found that amazing.
0: Yeah, it was really great. All right, guys. Well, without further ado, we're going to let you listen to our chat with, uh, Judy Collins. Again, Judy, thank you so much for your time, uh, and your wisdom. It was a, it was a distinct honor, as Bobby said. All right. Enjoy. So today we are joined by an incredibly special guest, the one and only incomparable Judy Collins. Judy, welcome to processing.
2: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, so for anyone who does isn't familiar with Judy, which I can't imagine there's many of her listeners out there who aren't, but uh, Judy's an amazing musician, singer, Grammy winner, um, author, activist, and grief survivor. And we're just, yeah, we're just so thrilled to have you. We couldn't wait for the day to come. Mm-hmm. We've been calling it Judy Collins Day.
2: <laughs> good, good, good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Judy, we were supposed to do this interview back in April originally. Oh, and then yes. And
3: then something,
0: uh, some <laughs> crazy thing popped up. <laughs> and here we are. What have you been, how have you been holding up in this whole crazy time?
2: with coronavirus? Well, it's been a, quite an interesting time. And... I'm in New York at home. My husband and I are uh, in lockdown, but we do, we do take a walk in the park or by the river every three or four days. Mm. And uh, recently, we've had the pleasure of going down to Virginia to do a a, um, a viral concert. But otherwise, we're here. We have a lot of mm. Zooms with friends, and that's something I really recommend to anyone who is going through difficulties of any kind. Keep your social life up on Zoom. We have norm in a normal time. We'll have dinner out with friends at least a couple times a week, maybe three times a week. When I'm home, I'm out on the road a lot. You know, about 120 mm. shows a week a year. Wow! But we keep we've kept ever since the lockdown in March. On March 10th, we had our last dinner out with friends. And after that we've been home, but a- every week at least twice we have Zoom dinners with friends. We don't eat anything, we have some Perrier <laughs> or something, because it's awkward to have an eating fest while you're on Zoom. It but is. But it's very important, and uh, so my office and I, my associates and I, I get some help in setting up the Zoom dinners, but we, we have them and th- therefore we've kept up our social interaction, which is one of the secrets of what we're talking about. Mm. Whatever you're going through, if you're going through a time of feeling unhappy or if you're in a grief process or if you need help, your friends are the first stop on your seek for mental health, on your search for mental health. Yes, therapists are great, and I've been in therapy for many years in my life, but fundamentally the people you live with and talk with and socialize with are the people that have to be there so that you can help them. You
3: know we often quote Viktor Frankl and we say that survival is a community event.
2: Yeah. And I think that's that's, very that's exactly
3: what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So in terms of what if do you, first of all do you cook? Are you a cook?
2: I used to cook extensively and uh uh very successfully but I don't really cook anymore. We have wonderful Places in New York that deliver, and many of our favorites deliver. Certainly Zabar's and EAT and Eli's and Butternut Butterscotch or Butterfields. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so we have deliveries from many places in the neighborhood and in the west side and the east side of new york so i don't i I arrange and organize the meals and i make (laughs) i make sure the refrigerator doesn't fall apart for being too overstuffed (laughs) and throw things out so there's more room but basically i am the uh, i'm not the chef but i am the server (laughs) amazing
0: amazing so what what are some kind of comforting things that have been getting you guys through the, is there like something you look forward to on those extra kind of maybe hard or scary days where You're like, oh, I just really need like the matzo ball soup from Zabar's or is there a specific thing? That well, you I can... don't
2: eat matzo balls. I don't eat a uh, sugar grain flour, corn or wheat. Um, got it. Uh, there may be an exception in some form, but it's not usually on purpose. So, so I eat three meals a day. Um, nothing in between um, i had eggs for breakfast this morning but we have a lo- a, lo- a number of favorites now uh, for lunch today i might do a gazpacho and um a yanni cheese which i put in the in the microwave and it makes it crisp yanni cheese is a grilling cheese i don't know if you know yeah. it if you mm-hmm. don't know about it you should because you should put it in your fridge it's a wonderful resource, it's and great. it's a comfort food for for, mm. for that's my kind of comfort. food. Yeah, I, I love eat very it. little. I eat very little cheese anymore, but I do love it and and we do have extraordinary things. We'll probably have shrimp tonight and possibly a, um, a turkey loaf which we love, which is from from uh, Eli's. And it might have a little uh, bread in it, possibly, but extremely mm. small amount. Right, And there's a chicken parm, which might have a tiny bit of uh, wheat in it of some sort, but not much. Uh, We love, we don't eat uh, much red meat, but when we do, we have a great steak from carmines or we have them in the freezer. My husband makes incredible uh, omelets and an incredible steak.
0: (laughs) How fun. That's perfect. Uh,
2: One of the things that we like a lot as a comfort food is a dish that Butterfield does, which is... Zucchini. Now, I like to cook uh, when I do cook, I do things like throw some sliced squash, summer squash, into small pieces and toss it in uh, parmesan cheese and then put it on the on the top of the stove with some spam or some butter or some oil. Oh, yeah. that's divine. That's Yum. my idea of comfort food.
0: That's good. <laughs> right. I that love that. That's good. Right. How awesome. awesome. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, you've had a very amazing career and also a very interesting uh, life that has been full of like very dramatic highs and lows, and some of those things uh, have been closely tied to food and eating. I know that you struggled and have spoken extensively and very candidly about uh, your struggle with bulimia and addiction to alcohol, yes. and then after that, uh, bulimia, um... And, you know, it, it, we talk about food and grief on the show so much, and oftentimes we find people talking about, I've experienced grief, and so I found comfort in this food, and that is a beautiful story. But I also think it's very interesting to talk to folks about how food was uh, not a friend sometimes. No, you know? food is
2: not a, food is. My food plan is my friend, but mm. in general... Uh, sugar and most of those things that we call comfort foods are not my friend. Yeah, I, I've been I've been a sugar addict since I was a child, very little child. I would, I would use my bus money and my, <laughs> my allowance to buy all kinds of stuff uh, mm. that I couldn't get at home. Although my mother was a wonderful cook and she made incredible desserts, she made the mm. the. the the one that drove me nuts was is called divinity, and I don't know if you know about it. It's mm-hmm. just basically uh, egg whites with some sugar in them, and some uh, I think you call it cream of tartar. I've often thought that yeah. I should try making that, but I haven't. I haven't stooped to those depths yet. <laughs> <laughs> I could do you know I could use stevia in it, and I could put yeah. cream of tartar in it, and put it in the oven or something. But I I was always a sugar addict. But the interesting thing about alcoholism, and I'm a recovering alcoholic, um, I'm in my 43rd year now. Hard to remember, but um, hard to forget. (laughs) Hmm. But all the... And and after I got sober in 1978, I was still bulimic for about three years until I found my way into a food program which has been helpful ever since. It's been Mm -hmm. a real miracle. But uh, my food issues uh i think it's very interesting that sugar grain flour corn and wheat the five foods that i mentioned earlier of course they're in alcohol that's what creates the allergy that we have which makes us want more eat more once we've started we can't stop kind of thing right and those foods are the foods that in a compulsive overeater will trigger the issues of obesity morbid obesity anorexia, um, bulimia, all of those things are driven by sugar, corn, wheat, flour, and uh, grains. Mm. So both of those food items, the drinking and the... Uh, now, when my father died, for instance, I was still drinking, and of course, that's all I did was drink.
0: How old were and you when I your didn't, father passed? I didn't
2: get through that very well. It was 1968, and I was mm. just devastated by his death, and I don't know if I ever got over it really, But food had very little to do with overcoming that grief. Mostly, I drank. Right. And um, of course, when I got sober and experienced the loss of my son to suicide, I was lucky in many ways because, number one, I had a program. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've never stopped going to meetings. So that's my foundation. I also had a foundation of of prayer and meditation so I have a practice which I've done since 1985 or 84 which is uh, the, I'm a follower of yogananda so I do the the yoga I do the prayers I do the breathing I do so I do that on a regular basis and so when he died number 1 I was sober hmm. and number 2 I I was able to take the actions that we need to take, which is to get help, to find a grief counselor, to find other people to talk to me about this. Um, In fact, after my son's death, I got a call from Joan Rivers, who had, of course, suffered the loss of her husband to suicide. And she said to me, I know you want to quit working, which I I had already started to cancel concerts. Mm. And she said, but you can't do that because if you do that, you're not going to get well. You're not right, going to recover. it's, it's pa- powerful advice. And yes, it was powerful advice. And, and because I knew her and adored her, I took that advice and I I rescheduled all those concerts. My mother came out on the road with me. My husband came out. My sister with one of her babies due and one of her babies in a stroller. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that I was surrounded by people, and also I already had a a very um, active relationship with food in a healthy way. Mm. And, of course, that made the difference. One thing that I didn't do was eat very much, even though I was supposed to. And I lost a lot of weight, and I was I can't afford to do that, really. Yeah.
0: Well, it's difficult in times of, you know, I think – I can relate to you what you were saying earlier when we, you know, you were talking about your addiction to alcohol. I have a similar inclination when I'm in times of deep grief too, which is not to turn to food as a comfort. For me, food becomes something that I don't want to have anything to do with, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't have, I don't have a alcohol addiction issue, but I find myself, you know, turning towards my vices. Maybe I'll smoke cigarettes or drink a little bit more than I'm used to, but. Um, I guess I want to know a little bit more too. Just like if we can back up for a moment, just talking about what what promoted you to to feel that um, believe. Like how did how did your bulimia start? What was the what was the trigger for that?
2: I will do anything not to gain weight. Mm. Anything. Why? Why was, is that? Oh, because I gotta look good. I gotta fit into my my clothes. Yeah. I, I, I also. I had always suffered from depression mm. from a teenage uh, age. Yeah. I tried to kill myself at 14. Mm. Uh, by the time I was a full-blown alcoholic, which was when I was 19, I understood I had to deal with this depression. And one of the things I had to do was figure out what to do about it. Now. There were a lot of things that could have been done, you know, various drugs and so on. I was crazy about speed, just Mm. as I'm crazy about coffee today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great mug. I, I was enormously depressed when I moved to New York in 63. And by good fortune, I got into therapy. But I also started exercising because I got it about my weight. I got it that I could not gain an ounce. It was unacceptable. It was impossible it was not possible to get into the clothes that I needed to wear for performing, and I always had to look good. I was not going to, I was not going to gain weight. And actually, my, my weight gain over the past uh, 80 years has never been over 140 pounds. I never, in other words, my weight gain was about 20 pounds that I was always, so I've gained and lost about a thousand pounds, probably if you count it up, Mm -hmm. Uh, every diet known to men, every, Mm. but exercise was what helped me with the depression. Of course, that's why I I exercise every day or every other day to this, to this moment. And I, you know, I live by that rule because that's for my mental health. That's so that I do not become depressed. Yeah. I can't afford it. I can't afford it.
3: Yeah. It's interesting the choice of not the choice, but of having bulimia instead of anorexia, where anorexia is deprivation and bulimia. Oh, I have both. I have, have both. But I have
2: with bulimia. Both.
3: You're giving to yourself, right? You're mm. eating. You love food. Yes, but have,
2: I have both. I am both. still yeah, yeah. a restrictor. Given anything, you know, my husband will say. Well, he doesn't usually say anything about my food, but there was a time when he would say, "You're not finishing your such and such." Mm. My. My uh, go-to position is I want to eat less. I want to be anorexic. I can't because the rule is I have to eat three meals a day. And with the bulimia, I would just go to town with anything and everything. I'd get into my stomach and then I would purge. Right. Uh, I learned to purge not from friends who were dancers, or ice skaters, or jockeys. I didn't know anything about that, I, although my best friends were dancers, but I don't think they were that extreme. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But but I did. I, I discovered it by myself. I thought, oh, I, I see, oh, this will work, you know. Yeah, and yeah. it did for 11 years I was bulimic, which is a long time. So I probably time, yeah. did. I probably could have done a lot more damage than I did, but there was a combination of dieting and purging and restricting, and 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 the alcohol, of course, everything sort of wound up together. Well, so I don't know. I can't analyze that. I just know yeah. that uh, you know. Don't analyze, utilize. Because the thing that happened was I got into a program that said, "You, here's what you do: you eat, and eating three meals a day, by the way." There are a lot of advantages, but one of the things that I've learned, which they don't talk about, is that your blood sugar is stable. Mm. Interesting. Without the sugar, grains, flour, corn, or wheat, and three meals a day, with the things you eat, a little beef, a little chicken, a little, you know, some some squash, some vegetables, some green beans, some this and that, your blood sugar will even out and stabilize. It simply (laughs) will. So, by the way, that means your moods are not going up and down and crazy. every Everyone's way, mm-hmm. which is again another way to look at the management of the emotions that br- that grief brings up. And I don't know. I can still, you know, you never know when a wave of of disorientation and unhappiness will hit you. This morning, mm-hmm. I was reading a, I was reading one of my favorite books, which is the journals of. Uh, Eugène Delacroix, the painter, mm-hmm. and uh, he was talking about a painter that he followed His whose name was Gross, and I could never figure out his first name uh, Antoine Jean Gross, and he talks about being so terribly disturbed by Gross's tragic death. This is in 1870's or something. Mm-hmm. So I searched around and searched around, because that's all I could find. Tragic death. So I looked and finally found out that uh, he committed suicide. Well, it sent me into a spin. Yeah. Uh, when people talk about suicide, I am immediately back in the throes of my own grief about the loss of my son 28 years ago.
0: Yeah.
2: So it happens out of the blue. And I do think that the maintenance of a spiritual life, of a connection with reality, of having plenty of friends to whom you can talk about this until you don't want to talk about it anymore. There There are no rules, there's no limitation. It doesn't mean that next week you'll get through it and not talk about it again. You'll always talk about it until you're through talking about it.
3: Because we grieve our whole lives. You know, I, was, uh, I really loved your book, The Seventies. It was a wonderful book, oh. and I've been a grief therapist for 30 years, and I've read many all the books there are to read. Oh. Um, it's, uh, how long did it take you to write that, and what was the impetus? that—that? Because that, you wrote first um, Sanity and Grace, right, in yes, 2003, yes. and then you wrote um, The Seventies in 2007. So tell us more about that, your experience with writing.
2: Well, I wanted to put down some of the things that helped, that helped me. You know, when when Clark died in '92, there were no there, there were only two books around that I could find immediately. Although I found gatherings of of poetry that were addressing grief and, but the only two books that really talked about suicide were *The Savage God*, which is about Sylvia Plath's uh, endless discussion of her suicide, and uh, I forget his name who wrote the the book, but. No mention of solutions, only Mm. about the desperation and the sorrow and the depression and nothing about suicide, uh, in her suicide, in her case, nothing about solutions. What do you do? I mean, that's the only thing. And then, of course, not only does he talk about Sylvia Plath's suicide, but then he talks about his own depression. Never does he say, I've got a solution. Here's what you do. And the other book was a book by a friend a woman who became my friend who was had had she's retired now, but she had a mental health foundation in uh in uh Atlanta called The Link. And uh her name is Iris Bolton, she's wonderful. And she wrote a book called My Son, My Son, about the death the suicide of her nineteen year old son. And it's a brilliant book and it's full of solutions. And one of the things and she doesn't Iris doesn't, she's not an alcoholic herself, and she doesn't deal, I think, with alcoholism in her uh, professional capacity, but she said all the things that we need to hear, like, when you're in a state of grief, do not drink or use drugs, because they will not help you get over this.
3: Right,
0: it exacerbates exacerbates it, yeah.
3: It really can, you know, Judy. You're you're such an amazing poet, and the, and I found in reading your works that the way you describe things, you used a word, some words. You said finding the hoops that would bind me to life again, and mm-hmm. I thought that was so powerful. So that's what you're describing. You're saying that, you know, something terrible happens to us, but then how are we going to survive this? What are the right. things that are going to bring us back to the loyalty that's right. of life? That's right.
2: And that's really why I wrote the seven T's for myself, of course, you always Mm -hmm. write initially for yourself. And then if you get it published, I suppose you're lucky or not, depending on on who publishes it and where it goes. But it's been helpful to me. When Clark died, the first thing that I thought of in 1992 was to write a 24-hour book so that. You have a book that has a quotation at the top of the page, and and basically to call it "How to Survive a Suicide." Mm-hmm. And so I started writing those days, and they helped me enormously because every day I would find a quote, and I would write about where I was in the stage of grief in the in the daily presence of trying to stay on the planet. My job was to not kill myself, first of all.
0: Yeah,
2: and. Uh, then I so I began to write some pages my editor who had published my more previous book uh, which was a novel I guess I must have published that in 95 and then I was due to write another book he didn't want me to write about suicide I did write a lot about my son's death but I wanted to write a book completely about suicide he wasn't interested so then came uh, 2003, and I sent some of the pages that I was working on to a friend of mine. I sent them to Julia Cameron, who wrote *The Artist's Way*. Mm-hmm. She and I are very Beautiful. close. And uh, unbeknownst to me, and at first I was very resentful. And then I thought <laughs> she did me a huge. She sent she sent the pages to my to her publisher. Mm. and Joel Fotinas at Tarcher said, I want this book. He called me up and he said, I think you should publish this book, and he was all for it, and this was the book, Sanity and Grace. So then I thought the next book should be about, um, w- so what do you do? I mean, exactly. what are the instructions?
3: Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the 70s? I think they're so powerful. I have it right in front of me. Oh,
2: good. So read so, it. Read, okay, read, the seven, read the seven T's for me. So the seven T's
3: are tr- <laughs> truth, to be truthful to yourself and to others. Trust, to trust the process and trust yourself and to begin to trust others. Therapy, to seek help, any all different types of help, to find mm-hmm. methods to heal. And to treasure, as you let go, to hold on as well. And to treat yourself, your body, mind, and spirit with temperance and tenacity. And to thrive with your eyes wide open to allow the process. And to transcend, to learn to live again with joy, abundance, and forgiveness. Beautiful, Mm. Judy. Really, so really wonderful. I'm struck mostly
0: by the by treasure, and you know, I think it's something that can be really hard for people who experience grief because I think we talk about this a lot on the show. But there's, um, since we are kind of in a a death and grief denying culture, I think that uh, there's a tendency societally in this country for people to just move right past grief. Right? You know, you feel sad for this amount of time, and then you tuck it away and that's it. And the reality is that like to really kind of work through grief is to never, you don't let it go. You don't forget about it. You don't actually get better. And I think that's scary for people to think about because just like you were saying this morning, when you were triggered by reading something about suicide, you know, if you're going to really process it, it really does stay with you forever. But that's like the important part. That's the meaty part. And I think that's actually the only way you really truly do recover. Right. I mean, that sounds like what you were kind of trying to say in that. I, I personally really connect with that. I lost my dad a couple of years ago and I just started to learn about the process of what it actually means to try to heal through grieving. And so for me, that, that one is the treasure one is the tea that I'm most connecting with, but they're also beautiful.
3: And Judy, you know, one of the things you quoted Stephen Levine, and when I read your book, I was oh. so excited because I love Stephen Levine. He's I guided too. He's guided me through my own father's death and through helping clients, and I worked in hospice for 12 years. But you quoted him saying, when we lose someone dear to us, all there is left to do is
2: to love them. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I
3: wonder what you mean by that, you know, why you put that in your book
2: and what yeah. that means to you. Yeah, I love uh, Stephen Levine. Who Dies is one of his uh, collections. Suicide has its own, its, its own problems. Uh, when they put this book out, The Seven T's, it was... I wanted it to be addressed simply to suicide survivors, because suicide is different than anything. Mm. And no matter what you, who discusses it with you, or where they come from on the scale of loss, suicide is different. The process is different, the world is gone, it is a devastating, inexplicable, and yet, by the way, it's a human right of every single person on the planet. Yeah. That's what Camus said when I was reading Camus at the age of 15, yeah. having already tried to kill myself. Hmm. It is the biggest, the most, the most joy-plundering, desecrating experience that one can experience, I feel. Mm -hmm. and because it's different you have to go to a place first of all you've got to re-examine your entire life that is not true with most grief this blames you know the suicide always puts the blame on the puts the implication on the person who has been deprived right
3: you've let me down
2: by the suicide and Mm. so it. it, I I discovered a man wonderful man I became very close to Ed Schneidman was his name. And he was a professor of thanatology at UCLA, a professor emeritus. And I found his books right away, because I was looking everywhere for everything I could find. He published many books about suicide. And he called his exploration, uh, his, he's like, he was sort of like a coroner of suicide. And he would go through. I never. He said, "I never want to hear that tape that your son made when he was dying. I just won't listen to it." But yeah. in every other way, we talked about every aspect of suicide. He had many copies of, uh, of Moby Dick around his home because he felt that Moby Dick was the, the, book about obsession and about self destruction, uh, and and Ed Schneidman really. Uh, helped me in many many ways but the fact is that it is different it, it involves an exploration of the inner life of the person who is left in such a way now i know that people who have suffered suicide losses and never come back of course. I once called a woman who was in a very senior position in one of the women's organizations in New York, and I knew she'd lost her daughter to suicide. It came to me through the grapevine, as these things will. And years later, one of her neighbors in the community that she retired to after she lost her daughter, she quit her job. She quit her, her, her entire existence in a powerful way where she was helping other people. And went to live in exclusion and, and you know, dissolved in her own sorrow and uh, disappeared. And one of her friends said, oh, you know, Ma used to tell me that your call helped her so much. Well, she never answered my call. Hmm. She was gone from the planet. That's what I wanted to do, was to leave. Yes. And that's yeah. sometimes the way we feel. So I the, re- the reason I bo- wrote the book, uh, Sanity and Grace, is that I wanted to write everything I knew about suicide. So I sort of got it all out. And in writing The 70s, which, of course, I'm going to get out of my shelf now and look at because it, <laughs> it sounds like a very good book. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's amazing. You should definitely That's read right.
3: it. You know, one of the things, in working with bereaved parents for many years, and I also worked in a 9-11 project and worked with a large group of parents who lost their children in 9-11, mm. um, I know that there's, it's the powerlessness That turns to guilt. So often it seems like guilt, but what it really is, it's the absolute utter powerlessness. And every bereaved parent feels that sense of guilt because our job is to, you know, take care for our children. You wrote another line that just blew me away. You said about the death of your child, no more egg on which to sit. That was so powerful. That was just, what a way to say it, you know, as a parent, because you care care for our children. And when they, when they lose their life or take their life, there's that
2: supreme powerlessness. Powerlessness is our problem <laughs> yes. because we cannot, we don't have control over any events in our lives. We think we do. We have control over our tempers, perhaps, or what we eat or what we smoke or don't smoke. Uh, what we say, we have control of. But very little else. <laughs> very little else, yeah.
3: That's where the serenity prayer from the uh, program makes such... It, it fits That's every right. situation, yeah. you know. That's right. That we and have control over some things, but most things
2: we don't. And because I was in AA, because I was in environment, not only with re- recovery groups and the kind of help that I was getting from people like Ed Schneidman and my, my friends whom I talked to, and but also... There were a couple people who had lost children, not to suicide, but to other things. And they talked about this in AA meetings. And one of the reasons, I think, that I'm not not gone is that I listened to these stories and saw that it was possible to live through this without drinking. Because had I been drinking, I would be gone, no question about it.
3: Right. So would it taken well, you deeper into the darkness? Yeah. Something that I think
0: is interesting, Judy, in talking about, um, you know, bulimia and, and um, uh, alcoholism and and different things that I think we do, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly, that kind of tra- that give us control, right? So like eating right. Di- disorders are often a lot about control, and in a way, mm-hmm. I believe that like addiction can be too, because at least you're controlling the environment. In a way where, you know, sometimes being in life without whichever substance it is that can kind of help get you through the day, using that substance is a form of control too. Try to manage your anxiety. Right. Absolutely. And it seems to me, and tell me if I'm correct in this, it's just a a hypothesis I'm working with. It's my armchair theory, Um, is that it sounds like after the death of your son, as crushing and unbelievably difficult and painful as that was, it seems in a way that you gave up control at that point in a way and and it seems like that may be one of the tools that helped you get through this because it sounds to me as though you surrendered yourself to knowing that you were more powerless and you weren't leaning on some of your previous vices like uh, anorexia and bulimia and alcohol Um, and you were just kind of in open water is that true at all
2: well I was sober I was abstinent so those demons were out of my life, mm. but I think you're right about the powerlessness suddenly becoming your your friend. Mm. I think that you in utterly in an utterly powerless situation, you really discover what the powers are that you have, yeah. and they have to come to bear because they have to come to bear to save your own life, and they have to be in other words it's it's not. What I, what people do, what people think about me, what they have to say, critically or positively, is really not my business. Mm. And what my business is to do the work that I have in front of me, and do it as well as I know, and to be as, to use my, to take take my perfectionism, which I have, some of, still a lot of, into areas where it can be helpful rather than destructive. Um, the eating disorder is is an is an example of of perfectionism. you know you want oh, to be perfect. you want things to be organized and and yeah. you want to get rid of anything that's in your way and so but but the perfectionism also as a tool for being professional is an excellent thing to have handy. You want to get it right, you want to do it well, you don't want to disappoint people. you don't want to blow the the show out of the water because you've <laughs> I yeah. don't know. <laughs> decided really? you're not going to show up, you know. Uh, and those things, all those things, I think came to bear more, even more fully, in my life. I, uh, I was uh, in touch with my powerlessness, as you said, in a way that became an asset rather than a defect. Yeah, yeah. and I, think I
3: imagine that's very that profound. your your practice of meditation helped you. Be in that powerlessness because that's Absolutely. part of what meditation. Is can you tell us more about how your spiritual life? You know, helped you through this.
2: I uh, I found the practice that I do most days uh, when after I got sober. I was always looking. I met I met the Maharishi. I met uh, uh, mm. um, Krishnamurti. Wow. I went to yoga practices. I was always looking, and while well, I was drinking. And after I got sober, I found uh, the autobiography of a yogi Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and was introduced to it by my teacher, by Dr. Brico, because she was a devotee of of Yogananda. And in fact, Yogananda was the one who helped her to get to uh, Berlin and get into conducting school uh, when Mm -hmm. everybody else in the country told her she couldn't be a conductor because she was a woman. Anyway, Yogananda's book about his life inspired me to get in touch with the center in California and to begin visiting and learning th- to do the yoga that is there, that is Yogananda's practice. And so I was, I've been doing that now since 1984. Wow. And you're right, I mean, it, it was the and is uh, the first thing I do. I read my books first, but then I do that, and mm-hmm. so, and that's right. That's uh, I mean, people can you can meditate any place you are. You can go to the ocean, go to go for a walk, like yeah, stare absolutely. at the sky, whatever whatever drives your train. But for me, that uh, formality of that that prayer meditation mm-hmm. yoga is a combination that I I remember when I first got got the meditation got the uh, the yoga moves into my system and I could do them. I'll never forget the first time that I really did all of the breathing and the prayer and the yoga and so on and then I said to my, I was up in the country at the house we used to have and I said to my husband, oh this is it. This is what I've been looking for all this time. Wow. And fortunately it has stuck and it still works and I still think to myself occasionally there are a lot of things about all kinds of different medication meditation that don't work as well as the yogananda practice and uh, if you ever want to know about it you can of course learn i think nowadays it's much easier to get a hold of the uh, yoga exercises and i realized only this this past week because i'm kind of slow sometimes that the format the formation the formal yoga practices are what has kept me very steady because it's like doing your own version of Tai Chi. It's a yeah. centering and a, a lesson in stability and ability to stand straight and do something. Totally, It
3: really engages your body into,
0: yeah. as yeah. well as so your spirit. So it's really
2: body, mind, spirit, yeah. and, and really says, practice.
0: It's interesting. I do yoga every morning too, and I notice on days when I wake up and I feel kind of like a bit emotionally unstable, I'll have... A problem balancing. And I'm like, why am I not balancing today in, the, in you know, Warrior 3? Like, I'm having an issue, and then I'm like, oh, I'm not quite balanced. Out my, and I I personally really feel that connection. And that's how I'm like, oh, mm. this really is super, My it really yeah. is all connected. Mm. Yeah.
3: It's, it's also what we can hold on to to, to let go, right? Because every day there's yeah. letting go, letting go, <laughs> and that grounding is what we hold on to. You well, know, and
2: also this is what's happening to us in this pandemic. Mm. Yes. We're learning about letting go, we're learning about powerlessness, Mm -hmm. and we're learning about responsibility. I mean, you wear a mask when you go out. Of course. Mm -hmm. You wear gloves when you go into public. Yeah. You don't blab your mouth off in a room with 15 other people who are standing (laughs) this close to you with no mask. You don't do that. Of exactly. Course. That sense of responsibility. And it,
0: it is a lot of letting go. And it's, you know, we've talked to a bunch of folks, we've caught up with a bunch of um, previous guests just to see how, you know, people that we've talked to have been doing during the pandemic. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people who have experienced some really deep grief during their life are having all kind. I mean, all kinds of different experiences during the pandemic, but there is something in, you know, after I lost my dad, I went through a really horrible time after it, a breakup and all kinds of other losses. And it was just this really ugly time in my life. And somebody asked me about it recently in an interview. And I was like, I think there's value in staying down at the bottom of the ocean for a minute and looking around because you can grab some Absolutely. tools down there that you can use when you come back to the top. Absolutely. And so I feel like this pandemic for a lot of folks who have been through really like strife and, and experienced like a lot of loss of control in their lives are in some way primed to be like, you know what? I did grab a, a shell when I was down there, and exactly. I'm gonna go ahead and take a look at that now because
3: it seems like it'll be useful. They, you know, they, do they you gained, feel like that at all? If they survived, they had a lot of tools that they learned.
2: It's It's an amazing experience, I think. It's historic. It's probably natural. It's probably a phase of the planet that needs to happen. You know, we mm-hmm. know now mm-hmm. about viruses. They come in all shapes and all sizes there yeah. are millions of them and they're all doing all kinds of things totally. in the world on the planet both destructive and and uh creative and we are in the midst of a phenomenon that is not unusual you know i i reach back to i read marcus aurelius every morning marcus aurelius died hmm. in the antonine plague of one 180 hmm. Uh, AD, uh, yeah. and uh, he was a leader with a lot of uh, values and uh, character and excellent qualities. I mean, he was a really incredible fellow. His his son was a disaster, but he uh, he talks about a lot of things that I need to learn about. He was a stoic, and part of it is that you are powerless, and you watch what's going on in the world, and you don't always have to engage in it. And yeah. here we have a situation Twice. where the the planet is getting a rest, mm-hmm. the animals are getting a chance. I mean, notwithstanding the fires, I know. they're getting it. they the animals, the planet, the whales, the 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 forests, the and the trees. I mean, everything on the planet is getting a rest, including us. Yeah. You know, I have my my team has tried for years to get me to take about four or five months, three, four months off in a summer, hmm. I have never been able to do it. Yeah, And of course, here we are.
0: <laughs> yeah. I wanted to also like quickly, that's kind of brings up my next question, which is this, that you're such a, to be a performer and especially to continue to perform as often as you do is such a giving thing, right? And it's rare and people find ways to give back in all kinds of ways. But I'm curious about the, the give and take for you in that and what is it in you that pushes you to want to give people that because giving people what you, you have an amazingly beautiful and comparable voice first of all but you know music offers people uh, a little a little relief you know and it's a kind it's like a gift really and so sure. I just want to know like what that brings back to you in saying you know you continue to, tour so often even to this day like there obviously has to be something in it for you that's really healing and restorative but then I just I'm interested in that give and take relationship between you and your audience when it comes to your own healing.
2: When I was a little girl and I started playing the piano one of the things that happened immediately was that I got to get away from the rest of the family. Mm. That the noise stopped. Nobody would bother me when I was practicing. Then of course you start to perform which I did as I said about I started at five. I would go on my father's radio show. I'd go on my teacher's um, master classes. I'd do the school shows at school. I'd sing in the choir, the solos, and so on. So I was always performing. But the thing that I feel is essential is that the first, for any creative artist and probably scientists and all kinds of people who practice something that they're good at, the first person who gets the benefits of that, of that is me, mm, Yeah, and it doesn't matter whether there's an audience or not. If I'm, as I was last week in Virginia, performing to an empty, huge, gorgeous theater, mm. I'm the one who's getting the benefit,
0: Right,
2: and that's always true. Yes, there's an interaction, and which is wonderful, but the fact is I do this because I have to to survive. I have to to stay on the planet. This is what I'm meant to do. So I'm working on a handful of songs now for this new album, which is all my own songs. And they're intriguing and they're very different from anything I've ever written before. And uh, so every day I'm faced with dealing with them, learning to play them. I practice every day, which I have to. And uh, so that's my, that's the starting point of whatever happens on the outside with with public concerts and I love it. I love the travel. You know, when I was a little girl, my my father had a period in in one of the years when I was probably three, where he was on the road and my mother was driving. She was pregnant with my oldest brother, but she was driving, and we were all over the Northwest, and I had the back seat to myself. And I was crazy. I was always crazy about driving in the country, and the trees and everything wow. was so beautiful. And that's how I feel about the travel that I do. I love to fly. I love to drive. I love the trees. I love, you know, I just love traveling.
0: Yeah. And I'm
2: not interested in going to China in particular, but I am interested in this whole country. I love it. It's so gorgeous. And going to England, Ireland, Scotland, I know them very well. I'm getting to know um, Australia. I know better because I'm there often. I've been to uh, Taiwan and Thailand. I've been to uh, Japan. I've been, and so I haven't, really wanted to go to china necessarily but i probably will eventually yeah. but i just love to see all the trees
0: i know it's wonderful <laughs> yeah. and you know it's also a great point to just remember that like things that we do that we can do things for ourselves and feel really good about them you know and like well, it even reminds me
3: of a wonderful quote from natalie goldberg who wrote uh, writing down to the bones and she says do what you love do it as a passion and it will help to make you sane yeah, yeah that's so right. that's what you do
2: you've been doing what you love that's all these years. how that's what keeps me sane and i mean yeah. the day is composed of waking reading books that mean a lot to me Emmett fox uh marcus aurelius uh, thomas merton and a wonderful book called 365 tau which Ooh. my my oldest i have two oldest girlfriends and Marcia said, I mean, uh, C- Carol sent me the 365 Tao for a present years ago, and I read it every day. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. It's um, not Tick, not Hanh, but it resonates with the Eastern philosophers.
3: I'm ordering two copies, one for me and one for Sarah.
2: Good, yeah. You'll love it. <laughs> yeah. You'll love it. It's great. Can't and, of course, wait. the Thomas Merton is fabulous. Mm. Uh, also, the, the day is... You know, it's centered around an organized system of when do you practice, when do you go to sleep, when do you take a nap, when do you read, when do you do your meditations, when do you have lunch, dinner, when do you watch your movies? We watch a lot of movies. <laughs> Ooh, me too. What have you been watching lately? Anything good? About a hundred and fifty movies in the past. Uh, yeah, there are a few things that we loved. Uh, for instance, um, Night the Night Manager. Ooh, I haven't seen that. It's Le Carre. It's okay. a, uh, a series that was made in 2016. It's English, of course, and it's brilliant. And mm. I don't think that, I don't believe that there's another season coming up, unfortunately. And anything from, from uh, BritBox, you know, whether it's uh, Vera or uh, Shetland or Morse or yeah. Endeavor, of course. But a lot of great movies. You know, I had never seen The English Patient.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. The English Patient is
2: great. What a movie! What it, really a movie.
0: it really is. It really is. I yeah, it's it's great to go back and watch those things that you like have always wanted to see and haven't.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I tell you, we've sent our our movie list because uh, we we uh, we really have seen a lot of things that were spectacular. I'm going to look for it right now if I can find. Oh yeah, okay. So I don't have my glasses here, but I can make it bigger. Uh, The ones that have struck me, um, well, of course, we watched all the president's men, because everybody needs to read. Yep, to see as that. did I.
0: I went on. A, so Judy, in the beginning of the pandemic, I'm single, and I was I had just gone through a breakup, and so I decided that I was going to get into a relationship with Robert Redford, and I watched <laughs> every Robert yeah, Redford all of movie all of there them. was, including yeah. all the president's men, which yeah. is very applicable now more than
2: and, ever. And uh, three days of the Condor, of course, of the Condor, yes. Of uh, uh, the Spanish Prisoner, which I hadn't seen. Uh, in a long time Ooh. and uh eye of the needle and all of wolf hall of course oh wow yeah with uh Rylance. Amazing. and uh, you know all the bogart movies uh, the uh, all of godfather we've we've watched yeah i, mean, I
0: did that too <laughs> i did that too that's a that's a great rainy day to do it's like a
2: great rainy day yeah. and uh the Winslow Boy, which is a marvelous movie, Presumed Innocent, which is one of my favorite Scott Tarrone movies. So oh, we we nice. just sort of uh you know, we're going to probably do but I, I the surprise I'm so glad that I never saw it although I had m- sort of semi misty visions of it was the uh The English Patient. It's a mm. wonderful movie. It's and also the uh what is it? Um the Lisbon train to Lisbon, I think it's called, and oh, it's Jeremy Irons. So we got into Jeremy Irons, and then we watched Jeremy Irons and the Queen of England, and mm-hmm. all of the uh, all of the, the the Queen of England uh, movies. So we've ha- we've really had a fabulous time with our films. Yeah,
0: that's great. It's a great time to be able to do stuff like that that you know you always wanted to, but couldn't find the time. Um, Judy, at the end of every episode, we ask every yes the same question. So I'm going to ask you. Um, And I always like to know, uh, if you could have told yourself, uh, given yourself one bit of advice at the beginning of your grief journey, you know, right when your son died, uh, do you have a bit of advice for that self now, knowing what you know and going through what you've gone through?
2: It's going to be all right. That's very... Or as a friend of mine always said, it is all right. Exactly. Mm, I love that
0: beautiful it was a dream to talk to you and you're so
3: wise <laughs> thank and you truly a gift to this world Honestly, thank you
2: i've had a wonderful yeah. time with the two yeah. of you what a treat thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> yeah, everything thank- that you've
3: everything that you've given to our world you've given so much of yourself thank you yeah. and thank, thank you for giving us your time today and our listeners was really wonderful yeah thanks absolutely.
2: this was I'm a great go opportunity read, uh, the seven t's as soon as we hang up
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's great <laughs> I'm buying a copy for many of my clients. It's a really wonderful book.
2: Beautiful, Thank you. Book. Thank You're you. a
3: beautiful person.
1: I'm
0: Ethan Frisch, co-host of Y Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time,
1: and they get access to a whole new market here in the US, and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com.
0: So, Bobby, that was an incredible chat. As promised in our in our introduction, the chat was
3: incredible. What were some of your thoughts, your takeaways from our talk with Judy? Well, I must admit, I I was both excited and humbled, and um I was amazed that we were speaking with Judy Collins. I mean I grew up in the in the generation of listening to her music and knowing how inspirational she was, and always has been. Um, and yeah. so to actually be sitting the three of us together was just blew me away. i I really thank her so much for bringing her life into the story, you know, the true life, mm. and sharing her vulnerabilities and her wisdom with us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I did too. She was extremely candid. Uh, one of the things that I loved about her, and you know, we got a tiny peek into her life just via Zoom, like how we're recording. We could just see a little bit of her apartment. But um, she kind of told us about this in this interview, and I also had read several other interviews with her, particularly one that came out last year in the New York Times. Um, and learning a little bit about her rituals, like yes. she said, she gets up every morning and reads and she, you know, she just has this kind of way of, it seems as though she's a person who incorporates these healing things into her life, like yes. real true self-care. And I think we sometimes think of self-care as being a bubble bath or from massage. And those are definitely forms of self-care. But for her like so like practice. Reading,
3: yeah.
0: Right. But like, re- like. Ensuring you eat three meals a day, like reading something that inspires you and turns your brain on every morning, like is also self-care. And so I really appreciated that. And And I could identify with that because I have my own routines of self-care that are not necessarily pampering, but that are just like my routine. Honestly, even like watering my plants feels like that. But she seemed like someone that I could, I just got that vibe from her.
3: And I thought that was very cool. I agree. That was incredibly inspirational and for anybody that's living a hard life of any kind and life yeah. is, hard. Our, life is our, hard. our practices help ground us and make us strong. And you can really see that with her. I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think um, that like much like grief, um, we've had other guests on the show before speak about suicide. Um, but it's one of those things that particularly suicide, even more so than grief, it's like a taboo in our culture to talk about. And, you know, it's a very real thing that a lot of um, there a lot of people who do die by suicide, um, and then you know, there's a lot of more people who. Oh, I mean, I would venture to say most people have thought about suicide and had suicidal feelings at some point in their life, and varying degrees of severity. And so, I think to have somebody really, frankly, and and candidly speak about um, suicide is really important. You know, I just, I find it invaluable.
3: And the concept is, is that family members and loved ones are the survivors of suicide. Right. And so she spoke, you know, as a survivor of suicide and as somebody that had been that low and that had actually thought about that. But her conversation was so inspiring and so memorable and, um... I feel changed permanently from that conversation. I just and yeah. I wanted to add one more thing the, on the lighter side. She shared her what she loves to eat and where she loves to I buy know. her food from, and the movies she loves to watch. And I, know. I just felt like she really gave us a peek into her world and her life.
0: She did. She was very generous with yeah. her time and with um, the things she chose to share. And I think like those people who do have a public, more public platform, anyone who decides to be vulnerable and shares is in my book, just an exceptional human. Um, I think that when you are a public person that, you know, I could see people really wanting to, who are public people wanting to protect, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. not be so yeah. so outward and vulnerable. And so the fact that um, she chose to to be vulnerable and to share really meant a lot. And I think it, the value in it is that it can reach more people. And like, you know, the whole thing, the whole reason we do the show is to normalize grief and pain, right? Because mm. I think it feels very other when you're in it, when right. you're in grief, when you're in pain, when you have depression, when you're having like really dark feelings, like it can feel very much like, right. oh, I'm a, I'm a loner here. But like, you know, so the point of our show in general, I mean, we do love talking about food. We it's like to, to normal more about people. But I think like, you know, our goal really is to normalize it. To normalize and she, I think it. she really helped. Well, for
3: a legend... You know to help normalize something yeah. is really, <laughs> truly amazing. Yeah. 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 It was really great. Oh. It was really
0: amazing. Yeah. And I just want to mention, as always, when we do talk about suicide on the show, that if you are having um, feelings of suicide or thinking about it in a serious way, that you can always reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline um, or contact a medical professional, a therapist. You know, just reach out for help if you're feeling that way. Um, there are resources for you out there, and we really encourage you to seek that help that you need. Amen. And to not beat yourself up for thinking about it, Mm -hmm. you know, to not beat yourself up for thinking about it and, and dig into a deeper hole to try to summon the strength to at least phone a friend or family member or the national suicide prevention hotline and just reach out. And you know what, like, listen, just start there. Just, you know, sometimes it can feel overwhelming too. Like if you're in a really depressed place and a really like a scary place emotionally, you know, it can feel like such a, well, it's going to be such a big hole to dig myself out of to just, yes. just take it one step at a time, take it one step, try calling somebody, Absolutely. try talking to somebody and see how that goes and then go to the next thing. Right. Exactly. So it's one step
3: like, at a time. Actually a yeah. client recommended a book, which I'm starting to read. It said, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. But it's not okay to do it alone. Mm, interesting. Yeah. You need, yeah. you need to have somebody to talk to.
0: Yeah. And the same thing goes for uh, struggling with eating disorder. You know, mm-hmm. that can also be a very taboo thing to talk about and very difficult. Um, but there are a lot of resources out there for uh, coping and dealing with eating disorders. There's lots of people that have dealt with the eating disorders. I'd venture to say many, most, the, I'd say the majority of people out there have struggled with some type of eating disorder. You know, we live in a society that projects certain images of perfection and it's hard to not get caught up in that in one way or another,
3: but... So we send out our deepest humblest thank you to I want to call her Dame Judy Collins. I mean she is just such she is, <laughs> she is so goddess. Grand. She's, she's a, a true is queen. Grand.
0: You know we use that yeah, a lot now yeah, like yeah. they're a queen, they're a queen. She's a queen. And folks, she sure. she
3: she looked like a queen, she spoke like a queen. She is wonderful. I mean, yeah, she's absolutely
0: <laughs> beautiful. Gorgeous. Oh, oh. And you know I was just reading that Nora Ephron book. I feel bad about my neck, and like Miss Collins is eighty one years old now, and I was noticing that her neck is that of a thirty five year old woman. How do you do it? Your neck is amazing. My neck is older than your neck, and I'm only thirty seven. So anyway, thank you so much, Judy, and you are really you're a gift to this world. So thank, thank you. You, and hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, Please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. network.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio network.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.